Good morning. It's great to hear Amazing Grace. We hear it at funerals, we hear it in public, and it should be one that we hear in worship because of the message. It is Amazing Grace that is offered to sinners like you and like me. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 119, Psalm 119. So when Pastor Tim does not preach, the other pastors that come and preach, uh, we preach from the Psalms. There's 150 of them to choose from, and we're slowly working our way through them. Uh, Psalm chapter 119 is where we will be today. If you do any type of traveling and you stay in a hotel, you could probably predict what your hotel room is going to look like before you actually walk into the hotel room. Um, unless you're staying in really, really, really nice hotel rooms. But let's assume that uh, you're like me and, and you know, it's just a normal, normal uh, hotel. You walk in the door, off to your left, maybe off to your right, there's a bathroom, there's the sink, there's the miniature you know, shampoos and conditioners that you shove in your bag and you take to the Y so you can use them later. Um, you uh, have the little soaps too, those come in handy. Well then, you know, go back out into the room and off to the right, there's a little bit of a closet there and as you walk forward, there's some beds, usually at least one, but maybe two. And there's a table and you can plug in your computer there, there's a power outlet, little end light, you know. Usually a television, you know, because you need to be entertained and, and uh, the, on top of the TV there might be a folder of where you can get room service and you can find all the restaurants there locally. There's uh, a remote control, obviously, there might even be a movie guide. But normally by the bed there's an end table and on the end table there's, if they still have them, those landline phones. And there's a lamp and there's going to be a drawer. And when you open the drawer, usually there's two books inside. One is a phone book, although those don't really show up very much anymore. But the other book, I bet you could guess which that book is. What is it? It's a Bible. A Bible. Almost every hotel room that I've ever been, to, been in has had a Bible in it. Now, if you're a traveler, whomever, and let's say the remote's not working for the TV, and let's say you're too lazy to get up or you just want to not have the television and you open the drawer and you take the Bible, what should you expect? What should a traveler, what should just whomever who takes out a Bible, it's there, freely available, what should they expect? How should they approach it? Let me ask you, churchgoer, when you see your Bible in your home, wherever you might have it, how do you approach your Bible? What does it do for you? What is it to you? Well, the chapter that we're going to be looking at, Psalm 119, tells us a lot about God's Word. In fact, it tells us 176 different descriptions. It gives us 176 descriptions of God's Word. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, by God's grace, this won't be the longest sermon you ever hear, but this is the longest chapter in the Bible. And in this chapter, there are 176 verses, and almost every single one of them speak to God's Word. 
So just a couple fun facts about Psalm 119. If you have your Bibles open, if you have a, a, a written Bible like this, or maybe even a digital Bible on your phone, you might notice how there's all these really weird words, like at the beginning, like I see just before Psalm 119, it says Aleph, and then I go down eight verses, and then verse nine, it says Beth, and then I go down to verse 17, it says Gimel. What is that? Well, this is a poem, a really, really long poem. And it was a poem that was meant to be sung, okay? So the Psalms, as many of you know, was the Hebrew, was the songbook for the Hebrews. It was what they sang from. And, and each one of those weird words is actually a stanza. And it's a stanza named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So fun fact, you have the whole Hebrew alphabet in Psalm 119. First letter is Aleph. Another fun fact, each verse in verses 1 through 8 start with that Hebrew letter, Aleph. So if you're reading it in the original language, you would have verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, all start with the same letter until you get to verse 9, where you see the word, or see that word Beth. That's the second Hebrew letter, and all the verses from 9 to 16 start with that letter. So there's a lot of poetry going on. Not necessarily poetry that we see in the English language, but there's a lot of emotion and expression that the Hebrew reader, the Israelite reader, would have recognized in their original language. But all of that poetry, all of that expression, was pointing the worshipers to focus on one thing, God's word. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning, God's Word. In particular, how you and I should approach God's Word. Now, in the Hebrew, in this particular chapter, there are 10 different terms, 10 different Hebrew terms referring to God's Word. We'll look at some of them. But what I'm going to do this morning is I'm actually going to start off by giving two common approaches to God's Word. And I'm going to show that there's virtue in those approaches, but each of those approaches is incomplete by themselves. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to show us how, I believe biblically, we should approach God's Word. Okay? So the first approach I want to address here is a common approach, and that is looking at God's Word as life's instruction manual. Many people... Maybe that traveler there in the hotel room who takes out the Bible, opens it up. He's looking for instructions to life. And you know what? There's rationale to that. In fact, we see rationale to that in the psalm itself. Let's look at verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Life's instruction manual ought to have rules. And the most common word for God's word in Psalm 119 is the word law. You'll see that word take place more commonly in Psalm 119 than any other word referring to God's word. God's law. The Hebrew word for law, like I said, it's used most often, and that's a good thing. Law is good. Law in the Bible is a reference to a reflection of God's character because it reflects who he is. 
ordinances and statues are an extension of who God is. So who God is. So life's instruction manual should definitely contain laws. It should help us know what to do or help us to know what is right. But God's word also should help us to do what is right. If we look down at verse 9, we see how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word. Life's instruction manual ought to be able to instruct us on how to do what is right. More than just giving us specific laws, we know how to live the right way. And we're given guidance on how to practically please God, keeping our way pure. So life's instruction manual helps us know what is right, helps us to do what is right, but also warns us from doing what is wrong. It serves as a warning for doing what is wrong. What do we mean by that? Look at verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Look at verse 21. You rebuke the arrogant, the accursed, who wander from your commandments. Life's instruction manual warns us about not following the instructions. Now, as we look at this approach to God's Word, the Bible. Many of you, you may have seen, you know, that acronym Bible, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. You know, that's helpful. helpful. But as you look at that, as you approach the Bible that way, can I tell you that there's something missing to all that? And what's missing is a relationship. What do I mean? Well, each is helpful and necessary of looking at God's Word, but on its own, looking at the Bible as life's instruction manual can actually focus more on the manual and less on the person who wrote it. So by way of illustration, I just got a new chainsaw. I like chainsaws. I like being able to cut wood. And there's something just really powerful about having a chainsaw and cutting wood so I can have a fire and I can, it's dead trees in my backyard. And, and, and so when I got this chainsaw, I got an instruction manual. And that's a good thing because you need to know how to use a tool like a chainsaw. And if you don't know how to use a tool like a chainsaw, you probably shouldn't use it because the consequences could be devastating. I want to cut wood and that's all. Now, as I'm reading, <laughs> you got that, good. As I have this chainsaw and as I have this instruction manual, there's something I really don't care about. And that is, who wrote that manual? I don't even think about it. All I think about is, if the chain's loose, what do I do? What type of uh, gas do I use? Just straight gas or gas oil mix? If it's not starting, what do I do? I don't care about the person, I mean, practically, I don't care about the person who wrote that manual who's telling me how to use that tool. All I want to do is effectively use that tool, get my job done. And if you approach the Bible strictly as an instruction manual, you'll get a lot out of it, but you will miss the author. And so we don't want to do that. So some might approach the Bible or God's word 
from an instruction manual. And so the pendulum might swing to the other way, and they would approach God's word as a love letter. Maybe you've heard that described, that the Bible is God's love letter to us. We don't want to miss out on the relationship. So we have God's word as a love letter. Well, love letters, to be sure, are affectionate. And we see God's affection for us in his word. Look at verse 76. Verse 76. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Love letters show love. They show affection. And in God's word, God wants us to know how much he loves us. And in God's word, not only do we learn how much God loves us, but we actually learn about what he is like. We learn about what God is like. I know you turned to verse 76, but let's turn back to the beginning of the chapter. In verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. We learn about who God is and that he is one who wants to be sought after. As a point of comparison, we know an awful lot about what our God is like through another psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, right? And you have a whole psalm describing the shepherd-like qualities of our God. A shepherd cares for his sheep. He loves, he protects his sheep. And through God's word, we also learn how much God loves us and that he wants to remind us of the promises that he'll make. In fact, one of the Hebrew words for God's word in this chapter is translated faithfulness. Look at verse 111. Verse 111, 111, it says, I've inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. But then looking back at verse 75, really the verse I was uh, meaning for you to look at, I apologize. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in your faithfulness you've afflicted me. You know, God expresses his love while allowing affliction, yet assuring us of his faithfulness in the midst of that affliction. So God's word is his love letter to us. But like the other approach, it's incomplete if that's all we see God's word as. Because if all we're focusing on is how God feels towards us, then we're missing the relevance of God's word to our day-to-day -day life. You know, you may not have received a love letter recently insofar as the way that you think about a love letter, but you receive love letters quite often. You say, how so? Birthday cards, Christmas cards. People send you something and they say, happy birthday. Thank you so much for being a great coworker or hope you're enjoying this season. We love you and care about you. I've never received a birthday card or a Christmas card that says, you know, 
You really complain a lot. Stop it. <laughs> I've never received a birthday card that says, you know, you're just not a very friendly person. You should be more friendly. I've never had a birthday card say, you have a problem with lust. Purify your mind. That would be an awkward birthday card. <laughs> that would be an awkward letter. But can I tell you, God's word does just that, doesn't it? You see, God's word is more than just sentimentality. True, we enjoy God's promises. True, we enjoy God's affection. Those who are in Christ, we have been promised wonderful things. Our identity is found in him. Yet, if that's all that it ends in, then we're missing why God gave us his word. That God's word must have a day-to-day -day relevance. We rejoice in God keeping his promises. But these promises exist, and they don't always demand something from us. I mean, God's promises rest in who he is. And if we're not careful, then so what? So what we need to do when we view the Bible is take both the context of relationship, which the instruction manual sorely lacked, but then the relevance, which a love letter can lack. And we need to blend those together. And I think, think there's a verse in Psalm 119 that does a wonderful job of highlighting both these things. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. It says this, with all my heart, I have sought you. He's talking to God, obviously. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What I want you to take away from today, there's nothing that you take away from today, take away this. You must approach God's word as essential to your relationship with him and relevant to your daily life. God's word is essential to your relationship with him but it is also relevant to your daily life. And I believe that Psalm 119 verse 10 captures that truth. First of all, looking at the relationship with God. That we approach God's word as essential to our relationship. Look at the beginning of verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought thee. All my heart. This is undivided allegiance. This is not half-hearted. This isn't some more one day, some less another day. And with my whole heart I have sought thee, the psalm writer is saying. The pursuit is God. A person, three persons, who has personality. God doesn't want us to simply approach him getting a to-do list or an instruction manual on how to have a really good, successful life. No, God desires wholehearted devotion from us. And we do that through his word. You know, so uh, Pastor Steve alluded to the wedding, the, the, the hearts and the telepaths getting married here on Friday. And both of them exchanged vows. Can I tell you, I was pretty convinced that during their vows, they were giving their vows with their whole heart. Could you imagine what half-hearted vows would look like? You know, in richer or poorer, but not too poor, 
in sickness, but not too sick because, you know, I, I have needs too, you know. In health, but not so healthy that I start looking bad when I put on some extra weight. Not that, no. These are wholehearted vows. When a husband gives his vows to his wife, she believes everything he says with all of his heart, and vice versa. And that's the way it ought to be, right? Amen. Now, doesn't it stand a reason from a lesser to a greater argument that if we make a vow to the Lord, God, you are my God, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior, that that is a wholehearted pursuit? I want us to look at an example, look at an example, because a lot of times when you say that, okay, yeah, we can agree with that, but it's hard to really think of what that might look like in real time. So I want us to look at an example of this. Matthew chapter 19. Let's look in the, the New Testament here. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 16. And someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. You see, the wealthy man sought after Jesus, but only half-heartedly. Why? Because he was unwilling to sell all that he had to follow him. You say, well, is that fair? I mean, was it really a half-hearted, you know, request? And I would say, yes, it was, because when the offer actually demanded something of him, he chose his wealth over following Christ. Now, you say, does Jesus demand this action from us? Perhaps not in the literal sense. But let me ask you this question. Does he demand any less from you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, does he demand any less than what he demanded of this man? So, pastor, are you saying that I need to go empty my bank account, sell my house? No. But let's see what Jesus says about this in another passage. Keep your finger here, because we're coming back to Matthew chapter 19, and let's look at Mark chapter 1. Again, we're looking at this through the context of Psalm 119.10, where God's word points us to a relationship 
that is wholehearted in its devotion. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the first public statement of Jesus, recorded in Mark, Jesus said that those who were following after him were to repent and believe. Repentance is not simply tweaking the direction that you're already walking in. That's not repentance. Repentance means to turn around from the way that you were living and head in the other direction. Why? Because Jesus' followers, his listeners, were heading in the opposite way of the gospel in the kingdom of God. Instead, they needed to turn around and follow Christ. The consequences of not doing that are destruction, judgment. All followers of Jesus Christ must do more than simply add Jesus to their life. Amen. Followers of Jesus Christ don't simply need to, instead of going south, start heading southeast. No. Followers of Jesus Christ must repent that the life that they were living prior to Jesus Christ was against or away from the way that God would have them. It was towards destruction. It was towards selfishness. It was towards to self-deity. I am my own God. But when Jesus says repent and believe, he's saying turn from that way, believe in me. That is a reorientation not just addition or minor adjustment. Now, when a life reorients, or a life is reoriented, what does that cost that life? I would say it's not any different than what it cost that rich ruler. Because what he was oriented to was his wealth. And Jesus, being very precise, put his finger on that man's God and said, that can't be your God. Follow me. Amen. Get rid of it. Wealth may not be your God, but it may. What will it cost us? Well, further on, in, in chapter 1, Jesus gives us an example of, of four other followers of Jesus. You know, he said in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow them. What did it cost those guys? Their careers. Jesus says, follow me, and they were willing to give up their careers. So, 
Pastor, are you saying I need to quit my job and just be a follower of Jesus? Well, let me ask it this way. Can you currently exist in your profession and be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Can you fulfill your duties and obey God at the same time? Can you do your job successfully and tell the truth? Can you fulfill your profession and maintain self-control? What does following Christ cost a person? Specifically, it costs them their lives. And it's worth it. And that's what God wants. Because when we give him our lives, he gives us him. Amen. What is greater than God? With my whole heart, I have sought after thee. Not half-hearted commitments. God's word directs us to a relationship with God. Going back to Psalm chapter 119. As we read Psalm 119, we see nothing less than a wholehearted relationship to our God. But in the second part of the verse, we see the relevance of that relationship to our daily lives. With, my, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. By following up with this phrase, the psalmist wants the reader to understand the connection between seeking after God and doing what God says. Okay? You can't have one without the other. They have to go together. To seek after God is to keep his commandments. And if you've studied the Bible, you read the Bible on your own, you know that connection. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? James said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To simply be a hearer of the word or an admirer of Jesus is not to be a follower of him. No, it must translate into behavior. And God does that. We're told in Philippians, it is God who is at work in the life of the believer to want to do his favor, but to actually do his good favor. Meaning this, when I'm a child of God, God puts in me the desire to want to obey him and the strength and ability to obey him. That's wonderful. Now you might say, of course it does. But the opposite is true as well. To those who live a lifestyle of not keeping his commandments, don't give evidence that they do love God. Now we're talking about lifestyle. We're not talking about just the sin that all Christians wrestle with. We're not talking about Christian perfectionism, but we're talking about a lifestyle defined by not keeping God's commandments. Now, in verse 10, it says, Do not let me wonder. This indicates our walk, our lifestyle, our behavior, what we do day in, day out. Don't let me wander because we do this naturally. We think of uh, that hymn, Come Thou Fount, that last phrase, that last verse, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And not wonder like, huh, I wonder. Wonder. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Why? Because of that sin nature that all men battle with. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Wander from what? Wander from your commandments. God speaks into what we do and how we live. He doesn't say, don't let me wander from your suggestions. He gives us commandments to obey. And more than just simply having warm feelings about God the creator or God the comforter, we're prompted to live in agreement with what he says. Now, this word commandments is significant for two reasons here. There's probably more, but for the sake of this sermon, two reasons. First of all, they are his commandments. Not yours, not mine. When we handle God's word, it is his word. So when we have the opportunity to share God's word with others, we do, then more, we do more than just tell. We show. We show. Because when we share God's word, but if we show it in a way, I'm sorry, if we share God's word, but we share it in a way that it makes it sound like this is what I say, as opposed to this is what God says, then we're actually conferring authority on ourselves that we don't have. Our authority is through God's word. It's his message. God is more than willing, if I could put it this way, to have the target put on his back. When his commandments are disagreeable, we show God's word. But here's the other part, and this can often be the frustrating part. When God's commandments intersect my life, you know what I find out? I find out that where I really live and what I do daily, most often God's commandments actually come via human channels. You know, if God spoke from heaven to me in a voice that was unmistakable and gave me specific play-by-play -play direction in my life, I don't think I'd have as much problem with that as I would human beings who are being used by God to speak into my life. See, I can't look at God and say, well, look at your example. No, he's perfect. He's God. But human beings, we can look to them and say, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Look at your example. But what I find is that through God's word, when he gives commandments, and we're not talking about an authority trip, we're just talking about God's word playing out as it impacts our life. More often than not, it involves other people. This is very humbling, both for the person speaking God's commandments but also the person receiving God's commandments. And we're thinking about the person receiving God's commandments, hearing it from a human. But how about the one who's sharing what God's word says? Helping someone study the Bible, seeing an area in their life where they're disobedient and showing it and saying, what does God's word say? Are you doing this? What would God have you to do? And being an ambassador doesn't necessarily mean that we, and I want to put this the right way because it's God's word here we're representing. Being an ambassador means being faithful to the message that we're carrying, even if it costs us something. And we're for a Christian, we've been given this privilege. All right, so I have a neighbor with a couple of doors down. He has a very large barn. And in his large barn, he stores some of his friend's vehicles over the wintertime. It was a couple falls ago where I, I, I saw my friend's yard, and outside his barn, there was literally the most beautiful car I've ever seen. Now, I'm not much of a car guy, but I know the difference between a really nice car and just an okay car. 
This was a really, really nice car. Those of you who know cars, it was a 2018 Audi R8 Spider convertible. It was a beautiful blue color. Um, I looked up the specs. It has a V10, almost 600 horsepower. Those of you who don't know anything, it uses a lot of gas and goes really fast. <laughs> okay. True story. My friend, he has the barn, stores his friend's cars. He had a friend who literally had this unknown aunt who lived on the West Coast who died, and he got an inheritance for about $300,000 and said, sweet, didn't know this was coming. Let's go buy a car. He talked the dealer down from $179,000 to $161,000 cash. And there it is. I'm walking, I'm looking at this car and walking way around, you know, like I'm looking at it but not wanting to get anywhere close to it because a scratch is going to cost more than I make in a month, you know? So it's going to be this so awesome of a car. So I'm talking to my neighbor about it and it's like, holy cow, this, thing, this thing's awesome. And he's like, yeah, uh, you know, just pretty cool car and just very matter of fact about it. And I'm like, wait a second though, this thing is crazy expensive. He's like, you want to drive it? I'm going to drive it. What are you, nuts? <laughs> He's like, I have the keys. He won't mind. <laughs> I didn't drive it. But I know my neighbor, and his offer was sincere. Because the guy who owns that car, he's, like, he's got insurance on it. He's fine with it. It's just a car to him. It's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, he spent a lot of money for it. But seriously, you can drive it. But I didn't. You say, what does that have to do with this? Can I tell you, at some level, especially when we look at passages like Psalm 19, where we're told the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise a symbol. And you see all of these overlapping terms from Psalm 19 to Psalm 119 describing God's word. And then he says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Can I tell you, Christian, you have been tossed the keys, as it were, to something infinitely more valuable than a really nice sports car. This is God's word. Here it is. What a privilege. Now, that being said, we have this opportunity. We, we, have, we, we have this command. Don't wander from their commandments. And we have the privilege to being able to share them. But what does this look like then in the local church? Okay, so here we are. This all sounds good. Yes, there's a lot of value. Well, in the time that remains, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because this can all sound very nice, very abstract. But then what does this really look like? Yes, there's value in it. Yes, I should obey it in the day-to-day. -day. Okay, got it. What does this really look like? Look at verse 12. For even as the body, and he's talking about the body of Christ, 
I'm sorry, he's talking about the human body, but even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, they are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. And then he goes on and uses an illustration of the human body and how the human body is not just one part but many and how the ear needs the eye and how the foot needs the head and how the internal organs which nobody sees need the external organs which everybody sees and how it all works together. And then in verse 25, he says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So what? These commandments that we ought not to wander from, the first commandment, the one in which all other things, if they lack this, make all of our activity worthless, is love. Our role as a member of body of Christ, our responsibility to love above all, and then ultimately our roles in our life. So as Christians, we have this hierarchy of priority. First of all, my relationship to God. If I'm married, my relationship to with my spouse. If I have children, my relationship to my children, then the relationship to my spiritual siblings, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so how I keep those commandments filters through that hierarchy. Oh, let me not wonder from your commandments. Okay, so how's that working between me and my relationship with God, first of all? Second of all, how's that playing out with me and my relationship with my wife? Thirdly, how's that playing out me and my relationship with my children? And by the way, wife and children may or may not be there for the rest of my life. But for will, which is my relationship with my siblings, my spiritual siblings, that's my brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm a believer priest, I'm a partner to my wife, I'm a parent to my kids, and I didn't have a peace, so I'm a sibling to my spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. But then having that obedience play out in that. Where am I going with this? What I'm going with this is that our essence as Christians, oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Our essence as a Christian life is our place and role in the body of Christ. You say, okay, that's fine. That's good. We have this role. We have this position in the body of Christ. But what I mean is this. For too long, I think, I hope I don't unnecessarily step on toes. For too long, I think the measure of where we are spiritually has come down to, how's your time with the Lord? How's your time in the Word? Is our time in the Word important? You bet it is. But it's as if that time reading God's Word is the sum total of who we are in our essence as a Christian. Put another way sitting on the front porch in sweet meditation with the birds singing and the spring flowers blooming, that alone is not a relationship with God, much less the high point of our walk with Christ. Is it essential? Absolutely. But that's not it. I mean, it's kind of like me 
telling my wife, we're going to go out to eat for the next 52 weeks, Friday night, 7 o'clock, put it in the calendar, and I'm going to take Cleveland's top 50 restaurants, and we're just going to hit them all off. Friday, 7 o'clock, doesn't matter how much it costs. It's going to have a great night. So we go this Friday, you know, go to a restaurant, great time. Spend too much money, but it's wonderful. She looks great, conversation's great, everything's wonderful. Wake up Saturday morning, and I pay no attention to her. Wake up Saturday morning, I ignore my kids. Go throughout the rest of the day doing my thing. Next Friday, 7 o'clock, be there. We hit restaurant number two. Great time. Great food. I'm all about her. Next Saturday, same routine. I wake up, I'm all about me. I ignore her. I ignore my kids. You know, I think that might get old after time three. Maybe four. But can I tell you? Our quiet time, which is essential, our time with the Lord, if it doesn't meet, kiss, and work alongside with the rest of my life, is really just like going on a date and ignoring them the rest of the week. It's detached. It's dysfunctional. With my whole heart, I have sought thee. Don't let me wander from your commandments. They must work hand in hand. For some of you who are in a season of life where literally 10 to 15 minutes of uninterrupted silence is like gold, I hope that's an encouragement for you. I'm dead serious. Because there are some who beat themselves up because they don't have that time to have nice, sweet meditation. They just, and things are just so busy with kids and with sickness and with whatever. And it's like, God, I want to have this. I just don't. How are you obeying in what God has called you the rest of the day? Because that's how God sees you. And for those who perhaps are in a different season of life, where it's nothing at all to spend two, three hours in sweet meditation, reading your word, praying. What impact are you having on the souls around you? Remember? Your relationship with Christ? Your relationship with your spouse? Your relationship with children? Your relationship with your spiritual siblings? Does your two to three hours a day make a dent at all here? And I love you when I say this, but if that's what your relationship with your spouse would look like, don't you think you should reevaluate the relationship with your God? That's what we're talking about here. I love the Lord. I want a relationship with Him. He wants a relationship with me. And I have it through His Word, but it's always going to be translated into behavior. Okay? So going back to that guy who's at the hotel, who finds the Bible, opens it up, how should he approach it? As an instruction manual, that's helpful, but don't forget the author. Don't lose the author. He needs to see the author. She needs to see the author. As a love letter from God, to be sure. However, 
not just simply for sappy, sentimental purposes. This isn't a valentine. This is God's commandments to us. Now, for some of you might be saying, listen, when I see God's word in my home, I feel guilt. Because I honestly want to read it. I just don't know where to start. I hear what you're saying, Pastor. I hear, I see what the Bible says. I understand demands. And if anything, this just heaps that much more guilt. Can I, can I just ask you to ask for help? This book is not meant to scare you. This book is not meant to be inaccessible or only for the spiritual elite. Some of the greatest movements in our Christian history have been when this book, God's Word, the Bible, have been put in the laps of the people and they see it and read it for themselves and the Spirit works in their lives. And if that's a struggle for you, please come and ask help because we want to help. I want to help. There are leaders, there are saints here that want to be able to help. Women and men. Say, I'm not much of a, a reader. Okay, if you buy a chainsaw and you don't know how to use it, you become a reader. <laughs> or you become an amputee, one of the two. <laughs> and if you get a love letter from that special someone, you don't say, eh, I'm really not much of a leader, or much of a reader. Well, no, you want to read the love letter, right? So it does require effort. But by God's grace, may we be more than just admirers and more than just fix-it people. Would we seek God's word because we seek God? And as a result, would it change our lives proclaiming God to our world? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the availability of it. It's in hotel rooms. It's on our devices. Lord God, we thank you for it. So Lord, as James said, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. If there are those here in this room that honestly don't know how to read God's word, would you stir within their hearts the desire to get help from a pastor, from the person that brought them here, from someone that they spiritually respect? Would they study God's word with that person and see you for who you are? And Lord God, those of us who have known this book since we were young, those of us who had this book as a textbook where this isn't just simply to get us out of sin issues and problems, not just simply to accumulate knowledge. Lord, help us not to miss you. We love you. We eagerly anticipate the day when we will be with you. But in the meantime, may we worship you through your word. And Lord, may it impact our lives in our day-to-day -day lives, even what we do this afternoon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.